This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Remote and hybrid teams aren't the future of work, they're the present. OWL Labs is embracing this revolution and is here to provide remote workers with a virtual seat at the table with the meeting OWL. Their 360-degree smart video conferencing camera can recognize and highlight any speaker at the table using an array of eight microphones. Check it out for yourself at owllabs.com. We're already counting down to Saster Annual 2020. For our loyal podcast listeners, we want to give you $100 off towards your ticket. Just buy your ticket using code FAVE100. Up today, Glassdoor CEO Robert Homan. Well, Robert, thank you for, for doing this. Um, I just want to give a quick intro on you and, and uh, we'll kick it off. So. Uh, Robert grew up in the Midwest. He's got a great story, and I think will resonate with some of the some of the founders here. Studied computer science at Stanford. Graduated in '93 and joined Microsoft as a developer for for three years before moving over to the Expedia team. Uh, he was a key member of the team at Expedia for the formative years from like '96 to the mid 2000s. Then took over as a general manager of Hotwire. Um, then took a year off, and we're going to talk about your year off before starting Glassdoor in 2008. Uh, and then after an amazing 10-year run, sold Glassdoor last year uh, for 1.2 billion, actually 1.35 if you include the cash. Um, and so he, well he's gone through a journey from, you know, from growing up in the Midwest to an individual developer to being a CEO of a unicorn company. And, and so today we want to explore both the company story and his personal story. Uh, along the way. So in my quick background, I'm Neeraj. I'm with Battery Ventures. I've been investing in tech for the last almost 20 years now um, and privileged to work with founders like Robert. So, all right, let's kick it off. So tell us, Robert, about Glassdoor, how it got started. Uh, take us back to the year off and uh, what you were doing that yeah. year. Yeah. So as Neeraj said, I was an engineer, but then I was an executive for Expedia for a long time. And I was pretty burned out by, uh, call it 2005. I took a year off. I didn't know how to fix anything in my house, so I spent six months learning how to fix everything in my house, which is actually a great feeling. If I mean, not everything, like drywall is actually super hard, floating drywall, but like, you know, electrical plumbing, like I highly recommend it to any of you engineer types that like to build, like, you know, go figure out how to fix your house. It's like, it's pretty fun. Anyway, and then I spent six months playing World of Warcraft because I am a gamer in my heart. I've always been a gamer. And like I said, I was burned out. I needed something just kind of entertaining. It was actually an amazing time in my life. Like I'd send the kids to school in the morning, pat them on the bottom, go upstairs and like meet my guild and we'd raid. And in all seriousness, it was actually extremely valuable because I think for the first time in my life, I realized viscerally, I understood viscerally community. Like I understood intellectually like what a com online community was, but I'd never been a part of one in the way that like, okay, I was part of this guild. And, like I'm not going to, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I was excited to see my guildmates, right? Like I was a part of this community and the community had norms and it had rules and like, you know, it kind of self-enforced all this stuff. And it was a fascinating ecosystem, especially as I started to think about Glassdoor, which was a very complex community with very complex norms and rules. So, really how, so how did it. the idea come, come to you and how did Glassdoor kick off? 
Yeah, so Rich and I, Rich Barton, my mentor, he was the founder of Expedia um, and a guy I had gone to work with at Microsoft. And he had gone on to found Zillow. He knew I was taking time off. Um, he knew I was deep in the bowels of Azeroth playing <laughs> World of Warcraft. He knew my wife, I think, had been complaining to him that it was time for me to come up. And uh, we started brainstorming ideas for a company. Rich had this thesis that information asymmetries in the, around big decisions in the world could power... Um, companies. And so Expedia was that, if you think about it, like um, before online travel, you had to call every hotel and every airline before, or you had to go to a travel agent. And a travel agent had the green screen, the Sabre green screen, gave them a lot of power and transparency into pricing availability that the normal person didn't have, created an information asymmetry, and, it, and, and therefore a power dynamic. And Rich had this thesis that if you could flatten these, you, f- you basically could create value for the end user, probably cause a rewiring of the industry, and as market cap moved, be able to move a, build a company around that. And that's precisely what he did with Zillow, big decision people make around housing. No, you know, first-time home buyers know very, very little. Real estate agents know a lot. They have access to the MLS, right? Massive power imbalance. Zillow attempted to flatten that with transparency, and in doing so, tried to then build a commerce or a model, an uh, economic model around that. And so he and I started going through big decisions that people make in their life. Um, and this one really, really spoke to me, where you go to work, because I think it is, it's always been, uh, work's been such an important part of my life, so part, part of all of our lives. And then he also reminded me uh, of a time at Expedia where, like, you know, you do that annual survey that every company does, and, you know, executives get it in, like, this thick binder, and well-intentioned executives usually read it, and you put it on, unfortunately, it ends up in a drawer. Rich had printed that and left it on the printer by accident. Like, the whole thing. Like, the comments, all the unfiltered, like, it was all there. And his, his and luckily, his assistant did save it, but it was an interesting experiment because we had talked about it before, like, like so what? Like, what if that had been Xerox and sent out to, you know, everyone in the company and they saw all the flaws and blemishes of the company? Like, is that inherently bad or would it be good? And then we were thinking, like, what if... Like every company like this had a spreadsheet that had everyone's salary and everyone's stock holdings. And like, you know, we'd always tried to run the company so you could look at someone and like explain why their salary was what it was. But what if that were just out there? And like we started just doing these thought experiments and, and that's fundamentally where Glassdoor was born. And then we began to think about what, what should we responsibly actually do? That's great. Uh, Rich, for folks who don't know him, is an incredible person. He was uh, essentially the founder of Expedia within Microsoft yeah. and uh, we had the pleasure of working with him. You know, actually, you mentioned Rich as a mentor, um, and I find that CEOs often think about mentors. But when I when I invested in Glassdoor in 2010, it was you had something very unique about your company at that point. You had multiple independent board members already on the team. Can you just talk about that? Like, how did you think about advisors and when to get them involved? Um, who to get involved? Just, just comment on that. Yeah. So, and I also can't claim that I had foreknowledge of this, but I'll tell you how I thought about it. And, and I would do it again this way. It worked out this way. First off, I think it's important to observe that a business is nothing more than thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions laid end to end. And you like need to get most of them right. And in hindsight, there will be a few that are seminal. But it's really hard to know in the moment which ones those are. Like, it's actually not clear at all when you're in it that this is like a really important decision crossroad that we're about to take. But that's it. It's just a bunch of decisions, like laid end to end, that forms your your business and your value and everything else. And if you make them well, you know, good for you. And if you don't, like, things can go off the rails and you can you may need to recover. And so... 
like what Rich did for me was he was that second set of eyes that helped me um, to make better decisions. It's that simple. Um, he was he had more experience than I did, particularly, and he complimented me. I was an engineer; he was a business person, and, and so you know, whenever I wasn't quite sure, I'd call up and be like, "How did you do this?" or "How do you think about this?" or and like ninety nine percent of the time, honestly, he didn't know the answer because these aren't the kind of things that you know the answer to. They're the kinds of things you need to talk to someone about and sort of feel your way to the best answer you can find. You know, they might be like, I don't know whether I should keep, like, whether this exec's going to make it or not. Can we just talk, you know, or I don't know whether we, you know, should invest in this or whatever. Is it time to raise money or not? Could we push it a little further? You know, those are the not black and white answers. And then I didn't know any better when I built a board, um, but I knew that I didn't know very much about marketing. So I felt like I needed an expert in marketing on, on my board. Since this was my company and I was starting it, I was founding it, I viewed my first board members as high-paid consultants, and I recommend you do the same. I'd worked with a guy named Eric Latchford, who is a president of Expedia and a, just a marketing genius. And so basically, I hired him by giving him a huge chunk of equity and making him a private director on my board. I didn't know crap about HR because I was in travel. So I went and found a guy named Rusty Roof who had run HR at PepsiCo and EA um, and written a bunch of books and asked him to be on my board and again gave him a chunk of equity and he was my expert on HR. And then I knew that like building user-generated content communities could be really dicey and so and I'd work with Steve Coffer who is the founder and CEO of TripAdvisor. And so same deal. I was like, that guy will be helpful to me down the road. And we gave him a whack equity. So it was unusual. I had these three independent directors right around the time we did our A round. But like, it was an awesome decision. If you don't have those experts, I really recommend you identify the like two or three you need and just figure out a way to lock them into you Econo yeah, I, economically, not just informally, like lock them in economically and formally. That's great. I mean, it's one of the things I see the value of the advisors and the board members, independent board members, as opposed to just venture folks. And your board shouldn't push back. Like I'd be stunned if a good, a good board or a good venture um, partner should not push back. They won't bat a friggin' eye if you'd be like, I don't know enough about marketing. I'm going to go give half a point or a quarter of a point or I don't, it depends on the stage you're at, you know, to this person and put them on the board. The, you know, another scaling challenge we've talked about might be interesting to share with the group is just balancing this desire for innovation versus just focus and, and yeah talk about that a little bit and, and how you balance those two those two I think one of the most dangerous time of a company's life is when they begin to have some success right and if any most of you in this room are probably feeling this where you begin you have some success and then suddenly like you have, it feels like endless opportunity. Like you have, you know, hey, let's do this deal. Let's do this partnership. Maybe you could connect to this. Or let's have an API to that or blah, 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 blah. This goes on and on and on. And it's happening because you're having some success. Like it's work. What you're doing is working, but you still have very, very limited resources. And so figuring out what to say no to in all of that is very hard. And you were, you were important in this because you kept reminding me that like, I can't remember what your number was, but it was big. It was like, you know, most of your companies didn't have a second product till they were north of a hundred million. And and I was like, hmm. And and like our sales team, you know, was probably fifty hundred people by this time. And like honestly, they felt like a endlessly chirping baby bird going, More product. We need another product. 
you must give us something else to sell. <laughs> and at the same time, like you're trying to stay focused to make sure your existing product works better and better so that retention stays the same. And I think balancing that. But there does come a time where you've then got to pivot and invest in the next phase. But it's, it's hard. And I think it's got to be careful. Yeah, it's one of the things we see as investors, just balancing these two things is, is very complicated. And and getting product two out the door and getting a sales team to sell. It's just complicated. So it, it's, it's impressive you've done that now. I, I want to just talk about, you know, transition to like being a review company. Yeah. Um, I imagine, and I've heard that there was often pressure from folks to take down reviews, uh, to change reviews. Can you talk about that a little bit and how you handled that situation? Yeah. So we kind of knew that we would fail as a company if we ever did that. So and integrity was very important to me in the beginning. So we knew we wouldn't do or we just wouldn't do it. We kind of had a set of rules, not kind of, we have a set of rules that define what is fair game in our community. You know, again, rooted from my experiences in community and World of Warcraft to a degree. <laughs> and I was like, this is, these are the rules. And, and on, this is where we were different from Yelp too. We felt like Yelp had messed up a little bit by not being transparent about the rules. And that's part of the reason small businesses were so irritated with them is they didn't know what the rules were. So we were very transparent about here's the rules for what's allowed in our community. And if it fits these rules, it stays. And if it doesn't fit the rules, it goes and we moderate everything. And by the way, we will always listen. There are like two axioms. You should know the rules and I will listen to you. And if we change the rules, we'll change them for everybody. So that was like the foundation. And, but then yes, of course, like, you know, you, you, you would definitely have deals. Like we had six figure deals where it was like, you know, a, a review would come in and then right before signing that they didn't like, and they'd be like, okay, we're ready to go except for this one thing. Like, we just need you to deal with this one review. What would you do? We couldn't do it, right? I mean, we, you, that is the one thing, you know, we couldn't trade. And as an engineer, I didn't understand the focus. Like, I, I kept hearing this focus on integrity from salespeople and organizations and stuff. And I didn't understand it, honestly, as an engineer, because as an engineer, you don't face it that often. It's like you write code, it either works or it doesn't. You know, I guess you could write fraudulent code, but like, it, okay. But like, as I started building big sales teams, it, it dawned on me, I was like, wow, the only thing that separates fact from fiction is what's coming out of these people's mouths. Like, that's it. And they're under tremendous personal pressure to hit a number. Like, are we going to pay the rent this month? Pressure. And so if you don't make it a big deal that they always tell the truth and they're not, and they won't deviate from it, like the pressure can get to them. And so, so we had to get really, we got really crystal clear on that. Um, and, and like we walked away from deals and, and occasionally customers would think like there was a wink and a nod. Like, you know, if they signed, then we would modify stuff and, and we would just give them their money back, honestly. Great. Yeah, it's a tough decision, but I'm, I'm glad you, you kind of stuck to your principles. Let's talk about the uh, raising of capital. You raised yep. $200 million. Too much money. <laughs> you had over 100 at the end. So you basically consumed $100 million to build this billion-dollar outcome, which, which is amazing. You know, how do you figure out which, which venture folks to work with? How do you think about that process? Uh, share some nuggets on that. Yeah. Um, so uh, there are a couple things. One, board dynamics played a really big deal. Again, I remember I had my first investor kind of came to us via Rich. So Benchmark was our first inventor because Rich was a uh, investor inventor there. I don't know. He was something at Benchmark. So they invested in us. So that was kind of easy. And then I formed my board. And then the following six rounds, it was a lot about like, um, will this person fit with the board or not? The person representing this. Um, and like, you shouldn't underestimate, like, do I like them? 
like in the case of battery and you like, do they have a unique skill set that is, you know, useful to us? Like, you know, Niraj was an expert in B2B. We didn't have it. I underestimated how much I would need it, but I knew I didn't have it. And so that was like a definite fit. And each step along the way, um, we thought about it like that. How much to raise and when to raise is like a really, really hard question that there is no right answer to. Um, I found that as the company matured and got older, I would have CFOs or you know finance people who would be pressuring. I think CFOs always want to have more capital in the bank. I guess the one piece of advice I would give is I believed, although I couldn't articulate it, that having less money in the bank created pressure and scarcity that was powerful in an organization. I knew we could always get money if we needed it, but if you actually had all that money in the bank, I, I definitely felt like the organization behaved a little less crisp. And so I think there's a lot to be said for like not overfunding a company. And you know, if I had to do over again, I would definitely would not raise as much money as we did. Hmm. I would ride closer to the rails, knowing that like we could get capital if we needed it. Okay, just make sure I'm in the cap table. Okay, that's the key part. Though, <laughs> um, let's talk about the uh, the decision to sell. Yeah, that's um, hard. I, I find that this is the hardest part of the journey. I, I talk to founders when they're thinking about selling. In the same day, they're like, "We're going to sell." Afternoon, we're not going to sell. We're going to sell. Talk about that decision. You could have taken the company public. You could sell for over a billion dollars. How do you make this decision? Who who do you call? Who are your advisor? You know, tell, talk about that. It was probably. This, I think this was probably one of the hardest things I ever had to make in my life. So we were working on our S one. We had chosen the banks. Like we had had our kickoff meeting. Like we were kind of barreling down this path. I had sort of always thought that we would be a public company. Of course, you know, your job as CEO you know, at this stage of a company is to understand, you know, your potential buyers. So I'd been having dinners with like, you know, CEO of, you know, all of our potential suitors, um, were it ever to come to that. And then, you know, they got one of them, you know, recruit got serious at this point because they knew we were working on the S1. For me, it came down to mission. Like really like, what do I, I went back, like, what did I want to accomplish in the world and what I, would this help or hurt that ability to accomplish that? And it wasn't just me. Like I found that like, like at our company at Glassdoor anyway, like a lot of people come to work because of the mission, like helping people find a job and company they love. And like, you know, if that would have been harmed, that would have been a real problem. If that could be accelerated, that would be tremendously important. And I felt that like being a part of the world's largest recruiting company and having access to all that data and having our sister company be indeed in a world where scale really mattered would, would help us achieve that. The outcome for employees probably was the number two biggest uh, weight on my shoulders. And it, and this is a time where, you know, people joke it's lonely as CEO. This was the loneliest time because my board was split. Some felt like we should do the deal. Some felt like we should go public. My investors were split. My executive team was split. Some felt like we should take it. Some, so like, it was like, but they all to a one said, we'll do what you want to do. So it's like, <laughs> they're basically saying like, what do you think the wise decision is? And I felt like, we are a recruiting company, scale matters, we're matching people to companies, we need data. We see a hundred, no, we see 60 million uniques a month, we're a hundred and some, actually we are over 200 million in revenue at this point, but we're still too damn small relative to these guys. They're 10x our size, like they're huge. The amount of data they see is like ginormous. Like we could, like we had expected to compete with them and beat them, but if if we didn't have to, and we could combine forces, and it was an extremely strong competitive. And then we did all the, the financial math, and it was like 
this price is about where we'd go public and it's an all cash deal and it would de-risk immediately for all the employees. At the end of an economic cycle too, by the way, it felt like it was probably the right thing to do. That thing can't be ignored either. We were a recruiting company at the end of an economic cycle. Could we go public? Yes. Were we going to have a rough point at some time in the next five years? Yes. Would we survive? Yes. We certainly would have survived. Could we accelerate, though, in that situation? Probably not. In our situation now, like, you know, with Recruit's balance sheet, we actually are kind of waiting for the recession to come to accelerate. And so I, I concluded that was the right thing to do. I said, who knows? I don't know. If it's- Ring the bell. Ring the bell. That's good. What did the meeting rooms of big brands like SoulCycle and Lola.com have in common? A wise bird told us that it's the meeting owl, a smart 360-degree video conferencing camera, which gives remote workers an immersive experience during virtual meetings. Join Owl Labs in bringing teams together for better work at owllabs.com.